name is Mickey Horvath, and I am the host of the Career Guy podcast, where I am interviewing a variety of guests and letting them share their stories about their career and career path, giving you, the listener, a lot more insight to the various careers that exist, perhaps helping you make more informed choices of the career path you may want to take in your life. Today, I'm interviewing Paul Rogalski, culinary director and co-owner of the Rouge Restaurant located in Inglewood, Calgary, a historical site. He is also the co-creator and culinary director of a television series called Wild Harvest. Paul's passion for food, nature, travel, adventure, people, and of course, life makes him a genuine leader. And he is well recognized for his work from all the awards that he has received. This is an extensive interview that will benefit anybody that is interested in being a chef, a restaurant owner, is interested in the culinary competitions and awards. There's a bit of history here, by the way. Being a small business owner, working internationally, public speaking, producing a television series, and of course, sustainability in the food industry. Quite the list. With that, I'd like to welcome Paul Rogalski. Well, today I'm interviewing Paul Rogalski, and I'm really excited about this interview because, well, Paul and I have known each other for at least, I was counting back, at least, I think, 35 years. Would that seem right? Oh, if not longer. Wow. Conservative on that. Yeah, 1984, Mick, just to add a year to it, since 1984. So that's a long time. So you and I have definitely meandered with our lives. So it's going to be interesting to catch up with your life story and see what happened and how you've transgressed throughout the years. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, I want to hear about you. Okay, well, this show is mostly about you right now. So for this, for, for the next little hour and so, let's just talk about you if we can. And I'll interject some things. But as far as I know, you've always lived in Calgary, have you not? Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, been in Calgary. I've tried leaving a couple of times. I tried to move to Southeast Asia, and I did live in Grand Cayman for a, a stint of time as well. But Calgary's home, and I love it Calgary's here. Home. So before we get into how you got into culinary arts and how you got into cooking, what was it like growing up in your household? Well, I can tell you my family unit was very strong and I was really fortunate that I had very supportive parents and uh, very supportive grandparents and a strong extended family. My mom and dad, I, I think, worried about me being happy more than trying to put me on a career path that they thought would be suited for me. And it's kind of funny because in my world, and this is where you and I, Mick, have something in common, we always had some great food at home. So. We also both had uh, very large appetites. So me wanting to become a chef came by naturally. Always around great food, always hungry. I ended up, you know, starting to cook for myself. And uh, way back in the day, and I'm sure you went through the same thing, we had some aptitude tests that were implemented by the Calgary Board of Education. And uh, I believe it was in grade nine, even, that I had mine. My aptitude was very much into the world of science and physics. In fact, I came in the one percentile category of people who understood physics. 
in, intuitively, which I thought was pretty cool. So when I met with a guidance counselor and we were talking about picking my career path, they listed off a bunch of different things. I could be an engineer, I could be a chemist, I could do all sorts of different things, or I could be a chef. And that's the one that I, I listened to. It's like, oh, I could be a chef and, and I, I could eat. So I kind of had uh, my career choice already you know, decided by grade 10, if you can believe it. And I went into food science all through high school, the 10, 20, 30 programs, and graduated from high school in 1984. I hate throwing dates on anything, but I already said how long I've known you. And then I went into the State Culinary, Culinary Arts Program, which is where I met you, Mick. And it was actually my very first course of my schooling to become a chef. And that's when you and I uh, became friends. Was that your first course? I thought yeah. you were kind of a veteran in there. That was your first semester there then, was it not? Yeah, it was very, my very first semester. And I had already worked in the industry. I was going into SAPE fresh off of working at the Palliser Hotel. So that, that was kind of fun. And I worked at the Banff Springs Hotel as well in the kitchen. And both of them are Fairmont properties now, but back then they were Canadian Pacific hotels. And after that, it was a fit. I knew I loved it. It's one of those things where I firmly believe that if you love what you're doing, you never call it work. So I don't think that I've ever worked a day in my life. Just get to do what I love to do. Maybe that's why I called you a veteran, because I remember when I first met you, you seemed very experienced in the kitchen. And I forgot about the fact that you worked at those hotels. Yeah, I, I remember in particular the class that I was in. It was a live cooking class. We were cooking lunch and there was a lot of us. I think there you know, must have been 20 students. Maybe it was 15, but it seemed like a lot. And we were running a buffet line or a cafeteria style line, I should say. And I was jumping around helping everybody because that's what I learned how to do in the industry. And I remember my instructor coming up to me and saying, do you know what? You're impeding other people's chance to learn. Back off, let, let them learn. But if you think my instructor was correct, people needed a chance to learn. And I just, I was already working in the industry. So I was operating as if it was not a school, but we had customers that we were serving. And no matter what, you serve those customers. I noticed that about you. You're a very hands-on person. You really just like to get in there and just do the work. And uh, I think if I remember right, a few times you, you mentioned there's nothing wrong with hard work. No, in fact, I believe you get out of life what you put into it. For me, I'm in a career that is nothing but hard work, but I don't really see it that way. It's, it's long days. There's a lot of 12, 14 hour shifts that I still do. And a lot of them are on my feet and I'm okay with that. What I like is the fact that nothing is routine, that every day is a new set of challenges minute by minute. And when I'm, I'm looking at the, the past, I think really the only downside has got nothing to do with, with my love of the job or, or my profession, but it really is the sacrifice of time. And being in a, a role where a 10-hour day is a short day and a 12-hour day is what you hope for, and there's many 14, 16-hour shifts that are there, uh, especially owning you know, your own business, that just goes with the territory. Consequently, 
I have said no to a lot of things, a lot of socializing. Chefs work when other people are off. And that's just the reality of it. If it's nighttime and you're up for dinner, well, somebody's cooking you dinner and somebody's serving you, and that's the restaurant lifestyle. So I accepted that, you know, and it, it became my world just to be sort of hyper-focused on, on my career. And I enjoy it, though. So there's crossroads that everyone has to make in their life. I chose to, to be a chef, and I've, I've stuck with it. I could definitely attest to that because I remember in our younger days when we used to go party and there'd be a lot of times you'd be coming to my place where I'd be meeting up with you later at night because you were working a shift, a Friday night shift or a Saturday night shift. So I think people that are listening, that are interested in being a chef or taking that route, you know, it, maybe it's just something that people need to consider is, yeah, your social life might be compromised somewhat because you are working a lot of the weekends when people yeah. are typically going out. Before we get further into your career, I just want to diversify back a little bit to, to the SAIT program. What was that program like? It was incredible. I loved it. What I found is the, the faculty was very talented and uh, very supportive. So for me, it didn't seem to, to matter which instructor I had and what I was learning. I was really getting a a top-notch education. And because I showed interest, I also uh, had opportunities to do other things like compete. And that was an eye-opener for me to, to realize that there's intense competition in culinary arts. And that was a fun part for me to have a chance to, and go compete against other... At that time, it was other students. And then professionally, I ended up competing as well. I think within competition, you learn the most. That's where you learn a lot about yourself. And I mean, just the, the act of competition means that you're hyper-focused. So the learning also seems to come at a quicker pace. And SATE gave me all of that. Like it exposed me to competition, it exposed me to the skills that I needed to succeed. And I had the support to really be the best me I could be. And I'll, I'll never forget that and always appreciate it. For people that are listening that may not be familiar with the competitions of culinary arts, what kind of competitions are there? Can you just give us a synopsis of that? There's hot food presented cold, and there is a huge international competition where a bunch of different countries get together and, and uh, they compete head-to-head. -head. It's a team effort as well as an individual effort. So you'll have Team Canada that might be five people, five chefs. And together, they are a team, but individually, they also have the, the chance for their individual scores. That competition isn't necessarily built on flavor. It's, it's built on creating a showpiece, something that is shelf-stable uh, and, and can withstand being at room temperature for hours. No one ever eats it. They just look at it and judge you on creativity. And that one taught me some mad skills when it came to making food look good. The ideas had to be there. The menu had to be there. And it, it really is intense, uh, believe it or not. And again, international, like some of the chefs that are competing in that are some of the world's top chefs. And then that was kind of when I started cooking that, that was really the, the big game in town. After that, 
there started being more head-to-head cooking competitions, more Iron Chef style battles. And those are the ones that I love the most. And the one thing that I realized about any sort of cooking competition, it's subjective. There's no way to be the best at something that is subjective. It's like saying, oh, that's the best song that was ever written. Well, there's so much other music and great musicians. There's no such thing as the best. It might be your favorite and your personal favorite, but there's no such thing as best. So through a competition, I just learned to be my own self and my, my own personal best. If I won, that was great. If I didn't, I was happy for the person that did. It didn't deflate me. And, you know, the speaking of competitions, I, I think, Oyster shucking is another thing that I've competed in. I've never done really well as far as competing with the fast oyster shuckers, but I've stood there with them on stage with an audience and always found that to be a lot of fun. And then when it comes to Iron Chef, I actually did have the opportunity to back up a friend of mine, close friend of mine on the Food Network for Iron Chef America. And we took on Bobby Flay. Now that was a decade ago, if you can believe it. Some more. I think it was like 12 years ago in the original Iron Chef America. How did that go? What was that like? It was it was pretty crazy. The competition is real. What you see on TV is what we felt. And we had one hour to compete. There, there's you know a lot of questions that I'm not allowed to reveal the answers for, but I will say that we knew what the ingredients were. That gave us time to talk about strategy and what we were going to make. So that's how, how that goes. But when the clock starts, you have one hour and you hear the countdown of the lady's voice, you have 10 minutes. That really is a thing in the studio. I had a camera crew on me the whole time and back then technology was a little bit different. There were big cameras with big cables and you know, one camera had three people, one on the camera, one managing the cord and one managing the the audio. So it, quite the crazy production. It was a lot of fun. We did not win. We did very well. But I, I think that was one of my first chances to see how television is put together. And it, it was fun. Loved it. It was a great experience. This is an eye-opener for, for anybody who's listening. I mean, there's a lot of competitions. And we watch TV Things like your Iron Chef and your beating Bobby Flay, that all goes back, that stems back to years ago when you had, or I'm assuming you still have these major competitions for culinary arts. So stepping back a little bit though too, so you did a lot of competitions when you went to state, when you were still learning culinary arts. When you're coming out of the program, what's happening to you? Where, where did you end up working? What, how did your career sort of transpire from there? When I graduated, it, it was such a, Weird moment in my life. I was at the Palliser Hotel and uh, I received a phone call from a state instructor who said, Hey, I don't know what you're up to right now, but the best restaurant in town is looking for an apprentice. I think you should go talk to them. And then I went into work at the Palliser that day and, and I was talking to, uh, his name's Gerd Steinmark. He was the executive sous chef at the time. And I was just, an, just a graduate. I still had to finish my apprenticeship. And I said, hey, uh, Gerd, I, I had this phone call today. I have a job offer to go work at a restaurant called La Chumere. And he looked at me and he, he said, give me your resignation letter right now. In two weeks' time, 
you're now working there. You take that job. Go learn how to cook. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, I was totally learning how to cook. He said, you are. But last year, you cook the best of the best all the time. And if you know how to cook properly for four people or for two people, you can then expand it to cook for a thousand. But don't learn how to cook for a thousand without learning how to do it properly in the first place. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I did. I, I took the job. I went to Lashmere. And at that point in time, I, I thought I was pretty invincible. I was a hot shot. And I remember uh, a couple months into it, the chef sitting me down. He's like, I don't know. I got to talk to you because right now I'm not impressed. I, I'm not sure if you are worth the money that I'm paying you. And I'm like, man, first time in my life I ever had uh, a roadblock like that. And he was right. I wasn't being myself. I was doing things for the wrong reason. I, I don't know what they were, but what I can say is I was missing the point. I would be asked to look after a couple of things and I was uh, too much in my own mind. Uh, I was stressed out and I wasn't functioning properly. And after that conversation, I thought to myself, what if me trying so hard and killing myself over this isn't working, I'm just going to go in and own my own stuff and I'm going to do it on my terms. And I think that was it. I was trying to impress other people thinking of impressing them at what I thought they wanted and not what they were asking for. And I showed up the next day and I put my head down and I just started giving it my all. And it wasn't long after that that the chef ended up taking a new opportunity and, and I got the role. I, I was promoted to executive chef of the top restaurant in Calgary. And I, I was young at that point in time. I mean, this is... Uh, Gosh, Mick, I'm guessing 1991, 92. Does that sound about right? It sounds about right. I remember when you were talking about hitting your roadblocks. And yeah. I remember you being pretty upset about it a couple of times. Maybe you want to get into a little bit more of that and perhaps explain to people, though, too, what's the apprenticeship like? Because I think a lot of people that are listening, perhaps, and I'm not sure if the state program or any other culinary programs have changed. But when you're graduating, people would assume, or is it a safe assumption that you're done? But when you say apprentice, you still have to prove yourself, do you not? Or Yes. So when you graduate, at least when I graduated from the culinary arts program at SAITS, I was taught how to cook. But I wasn't taught necessarily how to work. That wasn't their job. If you are in a student environment or a classroom environment and you're cooking for 60 people, there's 15 people that are learning how to cook for those 50 customers. If you're in a restaurant, there's three of you cooking for those 50 customers. So it's it's a big departure from school when it comes to time management and pace of work and really applying what skills you did learn at school and making them real time and, and taking them into a real environment. I mean, every school will have a struggle with creating that real environment because they do have a lot of people that they are training at the same time. But life experience is kind of like the the one that I, I think a lot of cooks got into that realm of, oh, man, I've gone to school for two years. I'm a great cook. I love it. But this is my 20th Saturday night that I'm being asked to work. And I've said no to all my friends, and I don't know if I want this. And, and really, the dropout of chefs in the industry 
over time is one of those things inherent with the trade. Uh, a lot of people decide, hey, and it's not that lucrative either. It's it, it's better now than it was, but it's one of those things where I think people look at what they want out of their lives, and if they're not hooked on it, and it's not their favorite thing that they've been doing, well, then they, they move on. And that's any industry, that's any trade, that's any career that schools teach. That's just what happens. People have interest, they go to school, and they make a call if it's for them or not. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you actually brought that up, that one indication that it doesn't pay well. It's not as lucrative as a lot of people think it would be. But going back to the 90s, though, too, I remember you talking about this and when you were apprenticing and you had to get your red seal. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So what does that actually mean? So if you could explain to people. So to become a, a certified red seal chef, the chef industry or the culinary industry is considered a trade, like a plumber or an electrician or a mechanic. Although it really isn't, it's a different skill set altogether. However, that's how it's categorized. So if that would be back then, it was a three-year apprenticeship in order to be able to write an exam that would allow you to achieve the journeyman status. With that being said, you could break up that three years either by being in the industry full-time and going to school part-time or being in school full-time with a year of industry at the back end of it, which is what I did. So my apprenticeship was two years of culinary school full-time and one year industry full-time working under a certified chef, which is great. The other thing, Mick, and you'll probably remember this too, I also worked full-time while going to school full-time. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so I was in both feet all the time. And just a funny memory, and you can edit this out later if you want. When I was at Lashamere, I used to work split shifts. And I'd work I remember that. Still do. And I used to go to your place in the afternoon. We'd either hang out, go to uh, uh, Stanley Park, or just hang out at your place. And I remember your mom always fed me before I went back to work. And it was always like crepes or something delicious in the afternoon. And yeah, your, your mom actually keep me fed many, many days. <laughs> no, I remember those days. I, I remember that. But when you worked in the restaurant though, too, I remember coming by your restaurant a few times later at night and you would provide food for me as well. So, I mean, you're eating well there too. Are you not? Or <laughs> Yeah. If there's time to eat, you know, what I've realized in my career, in my small business, often there's no time. In fact, I haven't had a bite yet today, which is normal. It's the way it goes. You walk in, you get busy, and you're busy serving other people, and you sometimes forget, almost always forget, to look after yourself. Breaks are really hard, too. It's not that you can sit down and say, oh, here's a break. Because the one thing about the culinary arts industry, that being a chef or owning a restaurant, it doesn't really matter uh, which end of the food service industry I've experienced, it all comes down to the same. The number one skill of any good chef is to be able to control and manage random incoming data. So there's always random incoming data. You've got people that you don't know when they're going to order, what they're going to order. You've got people that you are uh, training to think about systems so they can handle that random incoming data. It's really an ongoing puzzle 
of, okay, this information, that information, this, that, 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 putting it all together and then putting it out again. That is why the time evaporates because you're always dealing with, with random incoming data. There's no structure where you can sit down and say, oh, now's my 15 minutes where I'm going to eat or my half an hour where I'm going to eat because you've always got something on the go. It's always a day full of multitasking. When you worked at the Walsh Amir and when you were a head chef and you're, you're dealing with a lot of this. So people that are listening, you paint them a picture of what it's like to be a head chef in a restaurant. Sure. I'll paint a picture of what it's like here at, at okay. Rouge. Uh, we're not open for lunch. and We're only open for dinner. My average day being a chef would start nine o'clock in the morning um, on my computer at home. Uh, actually, not even that. I'd say 7.30 in the morning on my computer at home, going through emails, just double checking to see if the food that I ordered was on its way or ordering food. So I, I knew I had food at the restaurant and that's a huge complicated thing to get. Product in the restaurant, raw ingredients, dealing with so many different suppliers, that's its own NXT. And it, it's kind of, in some places, it is a full-time job for hotels where they have food purchasers that look after that. And then I would grab a cup of coffee while I was doing that, shower, jump into my vehicle, drive to work, fire up the kitchen, receive the food orders, look at how many people that I have coming in and start cooking and doing all the preparation. Even though customers aren't there, we, we start cooking. In fact, there's some dishes that I take three days to prepare. So I've been putting food orders away as they arrived, planning the, the menu for the dinner or the following day, dealing with random incoming data. Again, it's you never know when the supplier is going to show up. You never know when you're going to get a phone call that you have to answer or somebody, the salesperson coming in, cold calling at the back door. And it's, it's just do as much as you can nonstop to the best of your ability, period. That is the day. And at a certain point in time, other guys will show up for the kitchen and then they start working on their prep list and getting ready for the customers. And so that's a few hours before the customers arrive. And then we would have the front end staff come in, have a quick couple of meetings here and there about what the day is going to look like, what the reservations are looking like, how many people we are serving, what's happening tomorrow, uh, and really come up with a strategy plan that is not just about the one day to try and have strategy in people's minds, my mind as well, about the upcoming days so they can start working on getting some details organized already for the following day or the day after, the day after that. And then you have a customer arrive and they order food. And then there's different cooks and different stations that all have to be coordinated that the food is going out at the same time, same table. If it's supposed to be hot, it's going out hot and cooked the way that the customer had requested it. And if it's cold, going out cold. And the server has the wine on the table. It's really quite an orchestrated thing just to serve two people. And then, let's say that's 5 o'clock. By 10 o'clock, you've now served, you know, in case of a very busy night at Rouge where a lot of tasting menus go out, there'll be 600 plates, individual plates that evolve, and some of them have 10, 15, 20 components to one plate. 
and there'll be like 400, 500, 600, 700 plates going out for that service. All those plates need to be washed and it takes chemicals and a person to wash and sanitize all those plates. And then there is uh, the last dessert going out at the end of the night. And then everything has to be ripped down, organized. Uh, the food has to be covered and labeled and handled and put away. And the kitchen has to be scrubbed and sanitized and swept and mopped and garbage taken out. And, you know, now it's 1130 at night. And uh, that might be the first chance to have a bite to eat. Somebody in the kitchen would normally, it wouldn't be me, given the task of cooking staff meal for everybody. And that would be a typical day. So you've just given a good rundown of what the day looks like when you own a restaurant. Am I right? Well, that's, that? just being a, that's just being a chef. <laughs> okay. So I stand corrected. You're owner of the Rouge restaurant. Give us a little bit more insight of what it's like to own the restaurant and run it. Well, then that you layer in. So everything, and I forgot, and I can't believe I forgot to say this. In the morning, you also have to make bread. So making bread is a dedicated task. I, I can't miss that point because making bread is uh, not always aligning with making money. <laughs> but uh, definitely contains gluten. So <laughs> okay. the, the ownership side of things, well, then you have... Everything business, you have to understand payroll. You have to allocate time to actually talk to the customer, deal with the customer, look after advertising, social media. There's the, the maintenance of the building. When you're busy cooking and you're just the chef, it doesn't necessarily mean you're the guy that has to fix it. If something goes wrong, there's repair people for that. But when you own your own business, especially a small business, you end up becoming a jack of all trades. And it's partly because of money. And because margins are so slim in the restaurant environment, you can't call a plumber in for a leaky faucet all the time because faucets are leaky weekly. You have to learn how to do some repairs yourself, some simple things. And it's maybe not just the, the money out of pocket to pay somebody else to do it. It could easily be that they can't get there when you need it to be fixed because you have guests coming in in an hour. And maybe the faucet's not turning off your free-flowing running water. You need, you need to turn off the water to be able to serve customers. Or, you know, there's a multitude of things that happen. As a business owner, have to understand taxes and leases and payroll and scheduling and all those different things. And learning to own a business, I think, has been a bigger learning curve than me becoming a chef. It's really dynamic and you add in the restaurant industry is so volatile. It's one of the highest turnover rates. Businesses close all the time. It's one of the hard, hardest things to make it in. Banks don't run to restaurants anymore because the failure rate is over 90%. There's a lot of things that one has to consider. And, and bottom line is restaurants aren't that profitable. They, they seem like they are. And many people, they'll look at the prices and go, oh man, why am I paying $45 for that steak when I can get it for 10 bucks and cook it at home? Well, the reason that steak costs $45 is because you're paying for the experience, for the lighting, the electricity, the server to serve you, the cook to cook it, the, the way that it's been prepared, the thoughtfulness of the, the creation. 
the breakage because you buy China, but China breaks. Um, that cost, all of it is part of the dining experience. And that's what makes price points on menus what they are. The, the food costs, and we still have to buy the food. It's not that we get food for free. And that steak that you buy at home still costs me the same amount of money that you bought it for. And then I have to pay for the linen. There's another thing, you know, tablecloths and napkins. That's a cost. It's a big cost. And I have to pay for all these people while you're not in the restaurant, while they're getting ready for your arrival. So that's the world of restaurants. It's just understanding all the nuances and yeah, the details and being on top of it all the time. It's uh, back to that whole, it's all random incoming data. You don't know when your deliveries are here. You don't know when your customers are going to order. You don't know what the weather is going to be like outside. You, and that has an effect. I mean, weather, humidity levels, and baking. It, how does that affect the overall, I'll categorize that by saying, ambient temperature in the kitchen. If it's cold outside, how does that affect the heat of the food leaving the kitchen? Because it does. Or if it's really hot, like a summer that we've just had where it's 36 degrees outside, how hot is it in the kitchen? You can throw as much air conditioning at it as you want. The kitchen, that is, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be cool because almost all kitchens were fired by open flame, uh, gas burning, boilers or ovens. Or, it's, it's all the same. It's just there's a lot of heat in there all the time. So then there's managing what people don't think of. In the case of Rouge, we also have a really large garden. And that's another thing as the, the business owner that's always on my mind. We have an acre of land. Um, that grass needs to be mowed. The snow needs to be cleared in the wintertime. We have in the spring plant the garden and maintain it, and harvest it, and bring that garden fresh ingredient to our customer all the way up until now where we're, we're now bringing in the fall harvest. Another dynamic to think of just a layer. So it's layer upon layer upon layer of, of things to consider very much so daily. It sounds like to me like it's a real true labor of love. It is. It's highly addictive, though. Yeah. Pardon me? It's highly addictive. Well, obviously, you do like it. I mean, it it comes across. I mean, when when I'm watching you talking here, I mean, of course, people are just going to be listening to the audio, but I'm watching you talk. I mean, obviously, it's it's a labor of love for you. You've owned this restaurant for how many years now? 20. 20 years. And how did you get into it? Like, how did you come across it? It's a great story how Olivier and I became business partners. We were both working at La Chimera Restaurant. This is going back a long time ago now. And he had just moved to Canada with his wife, who was pregnant at the time, from Scotland. And I think it's interesting how he was living in Scotland for a while because he's originally from France. And he was working in the front end. He was a server and I was the chef. We just clicked. I knew what he was up to. He, he was looking at restaurants, possibly in the mountains or in Calgary, wherever he saw a lead, he was kind of pursuing it. And it was um, all based on the fact that he and his wife had entrepreneurial work visas. From the time that they arrived in Canada, they had two years to open up a business and hire Canadians. Really cool concept and, and a lot of fun. So there was um, this transition in my career 
where I had left Slashmere and gone to a restaurant called Cannery Row. I wanted to shake things up a little bit. I had spent a lot of time at Lashmere and I wanted to diversify my portfolio a, a little bit. So I wanted a restaurant that was not fine dining on my resume. And uh, Cannery Row was a seafood restaurant. So anyways, I, I, I left and started my new job and Olivier was still a friend. So we were still hanging out, which is really cool. And he was still updating me on some of these really cool restaurant opportunities. A lot of the times he would be like, you know, this one restaurant, it's in this town and, you know, it's only three hours from that other city. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's, I think it's going to be a hard gig. I, I don't know if I would do it. And he kept on running by these business opportunities for him and his wife. And I was never part of the conversation of being a partner at that stage. I just wanted to help him find a good opportunity because we were friends. So one day he came and he said, you know what, how about uh, this one? It's in Englewood. It's a restaurant called the Crosshouse Garden Cafe. And I remembered that restaurant from years ago to, to when this was taking place because it was a really cool location in Calgary that was getting some great reviews as a restaurant, but then it just kind of went off the radar. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds pretty good. I, I know there's a lot of opportunity there. It's Calgary, the price was right, so on and so forth. So he was literally looking to be business partners with somebody else at that time and decided that this was the, the property that he and his wife pursued. And they sat down with the previous owner of the restaurant and the lawyers and his to be business partner. And at that point in time, his business partner said, guys, guess what? I actually don't have the money. I can't do this with you. That's how far we went. And at that point in time, I went over to his wife and they said, okay, we'll close this deal on our own. I remember Olivier showing up at Cannery Road. He ordered something to eat. It was, it was an open kitchen. So it was kind of like he was sitting where I could actually make his food, give him his food, and we were chatting. And I was getting the update. He's like, oh, yeah, you won't believe it. Uh, this guy didn't show up. And I'm looking at him going, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, really? And I'm like, oh, really, really? Well, I can't talk about this right now while I'm at work, but I'd love to, to talk more about it. And uh, next thing you know, he said, I'd love you in as a business partner. What do you think? And I said, yes, handed in my resignation at Cannery Row and opened up the restaurant with him. At that time, it was the Cross House Garden Cafe that we purchased. We thought we were clever by changing the, the name to the Cross House Restaurant. But eventually, and it didn't take long, we changed the name to Rouge. And we've never looked back. There's definitely faith there. Was there not? Or do you believe in faith? What I saw was an opportunity to fill a dream. Okay. And what made this location great, and both of us saw the opportunity of the huge yard. We knew that we had the space that could actually grow produce. What a great experience for the guest if, if we could go out, pick produce, bring it to the table. Nobody was thinking that way at the time. Maybe a couple of restaurants across the, the country, but it wasn't Main Street at all. And... With Olivier's experience being fine dining as well and, and 
his whole world is customer service for his entire life. He knew how, how to serve the, the guest and he knows about wine or knew about wine, knows even more now. And I knew the kitchen and we knew how to work together because we already had that experience. It made it a, a pretty simple transition. But that's when the education in business became more my task. Running a kitchen and cooking, that, that was the easy part. When you have a business that doesn't have a lot of customers, that's hard. That's really, really hard. And that takes faith. So did I believe? I believed in our products. I didn't know if we'd be successful. I believed that we were giving it 110% every single day. I believed that if you were somebody who was looking for uh, a beautiful dining experience and knew what good food and wine was, yeah, we, we had that in lockdown. We had that in spades. But what we didn't have at that time is a way for people to know where we were. Advertising is expensive. It's a lot different now with social media and the internet. Because this is back before the internet was really a thing. Yes, we had computers. Yes, we had internet. But there was no such thing as uh, social media except for a little bit of Facebook, maybe. I think more so is still the land of emails and emails just being emails and faxes. For us, I, I think holding on to what we believed in because we rebranded a restaurant. A lot of people, they out of the gate, didn't really know what to expect from us. And they might've thought we were pricey, but we delivered and always believed in delivering and still do deliver great value. So it's the most important thing to, to us for people to walk away feeling that their money is well spent. And the price is the price. Beef tenderloin costs, the, if we're serving beef tenderloin, that's the cost of it. It's never been anything other than to bring the best of the best to the table. And we were fortunate that uh, we had John Gilchrist review the restaurant. And we had rebranded to Rouge. And he was in, actually, he was in before that. He was in when we were at the Cross House, now that I think of it, and gave us a, a glowing review. One of the best restaurants, one of the best two of the year sort of thing. And we started getting customers and then we started winning awards. We started getting more customers. And, you know, that perseverance of believing in ourselves and just being the best of our own ability and our staff. We're not trying to make our staff anything other than the best of who they are. It seemed to be a magic formula. The food that we were serving in the kitchen wasn't all Paul's food, not my food. It was our team's food. I had my ideas. I still cooked. I still had my signature in touch and, and guidance into the menu, but it wasn't only my food. It, it was the person next to me who had great ideas. It was a combination of the guests and what they were enjoying the most. There's sort of this hybrid of let's just be awesome. And in meetings, when we were trying to come up with menu ideas, it was like the best idea wins. And sometimes I'd be on a roll where I would have three or four ideas that the team went, yep, yeah, that's so awesome. We want to do that. And then there'd be times, and this is me owning the restaurant and being the chef where it'd be like, Oh man, I haven't had any of my ideas on, you know, the last three specials or, you know, very few on the past few menus because their ideas were better. So it was always a hybrid of the best idea and all the people that are here. And I, I think that sort of mindset 
did us very well in 2010 because we were named one of the best restaurants in the world. And it wasn't just some sort of rinky-dink, you know, here, here's your award. Congratulations. There was the San Pellegrino World's 50 Best Awards. And they're the benchmark. There's Michelin rating for restaurants, which we don't have in Canada. But a lot of people hear of Michelin starred restaurants. Uh, Michelin is such a big deal. But they're not in Canada. They're just actually getting to be in the U.S. They're in California and New York and Chicago, I believe, right now. Anyhow, the other big one for for branding restaurants as uh, being the world's best is not based on criteria, but based off of opinions of 800 judges that have to go out and dine out different restaurants, places that they felt are ones that are changing the game or have such a wonderful vision that it's setting them apart from other restaurants. And uh, we made that list and that was life-changing. It really was. We had people flying in from the U.S. just to have dinner. People from New York, from Seattle, from L.A. It was real. We became that restaurant. And we were sold out for months. This is a really bizarre thing. We found out we had the award, and it became a national news story. Next thing we knew, we had to hire staff to refuse business. Think about that one. We couldn't manage the phones. We had to hire somebody to manage the phones, and we were sold out. So... If you weren't willing to make a reservation a month from now, well, then I'm so sorry, but that's what we can't get you in anytime soon type thing. What's interesting, though, is that kind of became our MO, and a lot of people still will talk to you. It's like, oh, well, you're sold out months in advance. I I really need to get a reservation for this Saturday. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) That was 2010. Things have changed a lot over the past decade. Yes, we can get you in on Saturday night. It was great at the time. But I, I don't think we ever really wanted to brand ourselves as a restaurant that's impossible to get into. And the other thing that went along with that, Mick, uh, this is probably the biggest learning curve that we had. When you received an award such as we did, there was this thing where we didn't know how we got the award. You know, it was flattering. And uh, we knew that we were a byproduct of all the people that were here at the restaurant, but also other restaurants that we work with because it's a very collaborative industry that it was an honor, but it was something that we wanted to share. It wasn't that it was a Rouge award and Rouge is the best. We didn't look at it that way. We looked at it as, holy geez, this is a big responsibility. We now have people coming in with expectations of us being the best, but they don't know what that means. So we received that recognition. So we even went through a couple of scenarios where customers would be talking to our new hires. They, they didn't know the background story of Olivier and I and what our philosophy is. They, they just are on the floor and they're working and fielding questions like, well, how did you guys become one of the best? And there, you know, a couple of them would be, rather than saying, well, I don't really know. They don't really know. It's because we are the best would be a response. And that's never been us. And having that type of responsibility to live up to people's expectations, and this is what it's all about, really made us look hard in the mirror. And it's like, you know, we're trying to live up to people's expectations, but we're not being ourselves anymore. We're trying to be something that we're not. And it was a big moment where we looked in the mirror, 
And we said, no, what we are about, we don't know when the judges were in even to judge the restaurant. So let's just go back to who we are, how we serve people, fine dining without the white gloves. We want to provide a beautiful culinary experience, a really great location, and have fun. When we went back to that sort of mindset, that's when we found our true selves and have never looked back. And, and Rouge has, since then, continued to be named as one of the top restaurants in Canada or Calgary. And that feels really great. And that recognition is fantastic for our staff. But we also realized that it's an honor and we were humbled by it, but it's not why we do this. We do what we do because we love people and we want to make people happy, period. So it just sounds to me like you gave us a, a story of how you opened up the restaurant and in doing so, you branded the restaurant and you sounds like you went through a bit of steps to do that. And in doing that, you got recognized and you got recognized worldwide. And uh, it felt like you were, it felt like there's a lot of pressure being put on you to meet certain expectations. And in doing that, you sort of, um, I guess you could say you, you lost a bit of focus or maybe you, your focus was too intent and you weren't being authentic about things. So in doing that, you sort of stepped back and said, okay, well, we just need to be ourselves more so than anything else. And in doing that, you're, it sounds like you guys are a lot more relaxed now about things. And, but at the same time, giving out a good product. And it, it, am I getting your story right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, what it comes down to is we're focused on being the best of our individual selves. I'm the best me I can be. My business partner's the best he can be. Our staff, we want them to be the best people they can be of themselves. Not, I don't want anyone to come in and, Mimic me, that, that's not mission at all. I, I think confidence in yourself is powerful. And I believe that confidence is the most important thing in, in enjoying your day-to-day -day environment. And I think that energy, if you enjoy what you're doing, in our case, we enjoy what we're doing. And I think our guests feel that when they come into dine as well. It's an intangible, but for many people to go out to a restaurant thinking, you know, oh my gosh, it's fine dining, and they are expecting maybe the, the restaurant to be a, a little snooty, uh, a little pretentious. I think there was a period of time that that's who we became because that is how our staff were. That's what they thought the guests wanted was kind of a pretentious type experience. That's not us. We've never been pretentious. We've always been approachable and more than anything, just wanting to share the story of the garden or the story of foraging or the story of the room that you're dining in. Because Bruce is uh, an Alberta historical site. It's the former home of the A.E. Cross. And that's why it was called the Cross House restaurant previously. So people that are listening that may not know what the Rouge restaurant is, maybe people in Calgary that are listening to this or even Alberta or who knows, maybe Western Canada, it's in downtown Calgary or Inglewood, a very old neighborhood. And you said it's on an acre of land and uh, you built a garden for that. And it's an old house. So if somebody's listening to this 
and they don't know. They're going, well, what's the rouge? Why don't you paint a picture for us? Our venue is the former home of A.E. Cross. It's an Alberta historical building. A.E. was one of the founding members of the, the Calgary Stampede. He was one of the big four. And it's rumored that the Calgary Stampede was uh, conceived in the front dining room of the house. We still have the good fortune of having an acre of land attached to it, which we use in the warmer months to grow as much of our produce that we possibly can. We're really close to the Bow River, really close to the zoo. It's a great location for going out for a stroll, going along the river, stopping in, and and really enjoying a a farm-to-table, garden-to-table, forest-to-table experience. We love to really tell a story. And we tell a story through different offerings. One would be the wine list. And there's always a background story to, to the wine and where the wine comes from. And then with the menu, we have something that we're very proud of, which is also one of our best sellers, a chef's tasting menu. And that is a six course menu. And we pair it with wine for those who would like that. And it's adventurous. Most people prefer that as a surprise, so they don't know what they're receiving. But I can tell you when it's summertime or when it's fall, you can expect to get things harvested right out of the garden, prepared thoughtfully and presented on the table. And I think that's really been fantastic for our guests and for ourselves as as restaurateurs alike. I like that little story. That was great. So I want to talk about a few more things because, um, again, we're talking about careers. And speaking of branding, before we get into the final phase of your life, before we get into the TV show, I know you also branched off and did some public speaking. So how, how did you get into public speaking? And what, what did you speak about? My public speaking, I, I think, has been one of those things that's just sort of developed over time. Starting with cooking classes, and that would be to the public or or to students, to maybe even just talking to guests in a group setting. Let's say there would be 100 people coming in for a winemaker's dinner. I'd have to go out and talk about the menu that we were serving. That ended up augmenting into, oh, well, sure, I'll come and I'll speak at your conference. Why wouldn't I? It's something new for me. You know, the the interesting thing uh, is I still roll 100% impromptu. I don't have notes. I I might have just reminders not to forget things in bullet form. But overall, my public speaking is all off the cuff. And it's evolved from talking about cooking to talking bigger picture stuff. Sometimes my my topics are uh, motivational. Sometimes they are food and sometimes they're a little bit more charged on the end of food and growing. And I've even had to present before about the state of the oceans multiple times, actually, talking about the world of fish and wild fish. One of my most common topics would be the world of food and sustainable food practices. And I feel very passionate about those things. I'm passionate about our planet. I'm passionate about the outdoors. And I, I'm honored that uh, people trust me to, to share that message, no matter what the audience size is. And I've also 
had the chance to dial in my skills just by being on stage with some other great speakers. And for me, the two people that I've seen live that have blown me away, one is Katrina LeMaydon, who is the former gold medal winning speed skater from Calgary that was so very popular after the 88 Olympics. And the other is my friend Michael Smith from the Food Network. And both of them really just to see them, to realize what a good speech is, I, I think has empowered me to to want to deliver a message in in a way that is well-received the way that they can do it. But of course, it's me being me, not me trying to be that, but just um, having them as mentors, I think has helped me with my own public speaking. What do you think composes a good speech? What did you like about those two as far as their speaking was concerned? What hit you so hard? Well, they were talking from the heart, both of them. They only talk from the heart. There is such a connection that someone's being genuine. And I think that was the, the big thing for me is genuine people telling genuine stories. And that connects with everybody. There's some great speakers as well that are maybe a little bit more calculated And that's good too, but that's not what I've found captivated me and my attention. So the keys, I I, I think, for delivering a good speech is understanding what the ask is. If I'm being asked to speak about the state of the oceans, that's what I'm speaking about. And I have my hardest thing, though, is keeping on point because I am impromptu with my speech delivery. So I I seem to vary off point here and there, but I always bring it back, back in. I, I dial it in and get it into a direction that makes sense. But there's a, there's a formula to it. Tell people what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then remind them what you've told them. So key messaging always comes in threes. It's the concept of having chapter one. And chapter one is talking about what's to follow. And then adding the content, supporting what you were talking about, chapter one, and then in closing, how it all comes together. And really that, I believe, is the basics, but the fundamentals of delivering a, a good keynote. The last interview I did was with a colleague of mine, and we were talking about public speaking. And I asked him, and I'm going to ask you the same thing. Do you still get nervous? Oh, yeah. And no, it, it depends on the topic. I did a speech. There's a TED Talk style event. This is a couple of years ago in Toronto, pre-COVID. But I was on stage just before the, the number one chef in the world. And the audience was made up of not just Canadian media, but international media. I was nervous, you bet. Once I was on stage, it went really well because the the reality is once you're live, you're live and it's happening and you just have to have to be yourself. I felt a lot of pressure as I was getting my uh, presentation ready. It's like, oh man, who is the audience? And I guess that's the number one most important thing when it comes to public speaking is knowing your audience and delivering a message to the audience that, that they want. And that's the same with being a chef. Know your audience. If I'm going to work at a steak restaurant, well, the audience people are wanting to go for steak. 
That's what you have to deliver. Uh, when public speaking, you have to know what your audience is looking for in, in your speech and you have to deliver that. So nerves would count me in making sure that I have figured that component out. And after that, it's just a matter of function and, uh, and doing it. Thanks for answering that. I think everybody has the same answer to that. They're nervous before, but once you get going, the butterflies may still be there, but once you get going and you get into talking about whatever you're talking about, then you're flowing with that. That's what I'm hearing from you as well. And looking out into the audience and you see people that are being receptive about what you're saying, then you just, just sort of feed off that energy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's nice looking people in the eye when you're talking to them. And that's one thing that I really like about uh, live. And whether it's cooking demos or cooking classes or keynotes, it's being able to look around and see that you're connecting with people. And I, I love that. I love that moment of sharing, most definitely. Before I get into your TV search, I want to also talk about the culinary art. And I know you traveled for that purpose as well. I know you went to Asia and you tried it out, but then you also lived in the Dominican Republic. And I know you were at a really uh, high-end uh, hotel. Do you want to, can you just talk about that for a couple of minutes and elaborate on that experience, please? Yeah, you bet. It actually was Grand Cayman. That, okay. Yeah, it was interesting. So as far as travel, my growth as a cook was really, really influenced in a big way by traveling through Southeast Asia. I had actually gone to Singapore initially because I thought I was going to be working there. I had a job. So I packed up, moved to Singapore and realized that legally I was too young to work. I learned a whole bunch about international contract negotiations. So I thought, well, while I'm here, I'd like to just experiment and experience as much as I possibly could with local foods. And I worked at the Carlton Hotel for a couple of days. And I, I thought I was actually going to be properly employed at a place in Kuala Lumpur called the Carcosa Serenagara. As it turned out, I was working for free at places. And <laughs> I won't get into that, but it's still a, it's something that is very common nowadays in my world where cooks will work at a, a restaurant for free just to gain experience. And it's called stage. S, like stage, same spelling, S-T-A-G-E. Anyways, lucky for me that I had my wife with me and we met one of our close friends because he happened to be traveling at the same time and really went into these different areas and experienced some phenomenal food in such a different way than we're used to experiencing food in, in North America. And that, that changed how I cook. That changed how I taste. And it was really probably one of the most important experiences I had at understanding myself. When you're traveling and, and you are experiencing all these different new stimulants, that's, that's really where I learned to deal with noise and air pollution. And I realized coming back to Canada that, holy cow, are we ever lucky here? We don't even know how lucky we are. If you look at what the daily person, let's say on the island of Sumatra, deals with versus what we deal with, boy, if life is good and, man, we have it easy. And that, that was also a really good lesson is that, you know what? People work hard everywhere. 
that's just the way it is. You have to work hard. So my experience at Grand Cayman was very different. I failed at gaining international experience officially when I was in Southeast Asia, although I did. I, I was working at the Carcosa Serenagara. It's just that my contract wasn't approved by the head office in Switzerland. So I wanted something on my resume. I wanted to say I had international experience and I had an opportunity to go and work at the Hyatt Regency in Grand Cayman. I applied and I was already the executive chef of Latchamere at the time. They hired me at a lower management position and I jumped on that opportunity and, and I got to the island. And it was interesting because rather than being in an Asian kitchen, and the chef at the Carcosa Cesare Nagara was Swiss. And I had worked with a lot of Europeans. I was on the same page as, as him. I loved working with him. When I got it to Grand Cayman, it was like stepping into an episode of Hell's Kitchen. It was an English regime. The guys in the kitchen I was uh, working beside made Gordon Ramsay seem like a pussycat. It was hardcore. It was... Probably one of the, the bigger lessons of my life in understanding that just because somebody is angry doesn't mean it's personal and maybe it's just you know, a place to develop a tough skin. And that's what happened. I didn't have the best culinary experience because the, the audience wasn't looking for a fine dining culinary experience. I had to augment my cooking skills and I, I had to learn about you know, different things. The food is coming in from Miami. It's on a ship. The ship is tied up somewhere along the way. So working with different parameters than I would have anywhere else. Also, it was amazing to live on an island in the Caribbean. And, and it was. I mean, our apartment was on Seven Mile Beach, which is one of the nicest beaches on the planet. We had people visit all the time. And it was great to have guests come to the island. The reality is, it's an island, and, and I'm from the prairies. I miss looking at the Rocky Mountains. I miss looking at the big skies. I, I miss the change of seasons. And I like winter. And when I was experiencing Christmas and it's 35 degrees outside, a couple times like I have, I learned probably the most about myself that I'm lucky to be Canadian. I'm lucky to be in a part of the world that has nothing but space. And that is when I decided that, no, oh, Calgary's my home. This is where I stay. It's funny that you bring that up because it, it sounds like you have to go away and live abroad and do something abroad to realize how good you have it back here. And it sounds like it just really hit you hard that, okay, Calgary is home and I want to stay here. That's it. Perspective is everything. Yeah. I want to get into your final big chapter, your TV show. And why don't you just do a plug for it right now and give the audience a real synopsis of what it's all about. Because I've watched a bunch of the episodes, but uh, I'm going to let you explain it because you'll explain it way better than I can. I'm at this next phase of my career and I, I have a television series with Les Stroud, who people might know more as Survivor Man. Anyways, Les is one of the leading people on the planet when it comes to foraging and the outdoors. And our show essentially is Les 
taking me out and introducing me to new ingredients, to, to foraged ingredients, to wild flavors that I've never experienced before. And then my job is to learn about them, cook with them, and make something delicious out of them. So it's kind of like an Iron Chef type battle, but I'm only cooking for less. So it's a judge of one. And actually, there's three of us on the project. It's Les, myself, and award-winning filmmaker Kevin Kosselin. So I don't even know how to absorb some of the success that we're having. It it, it seems surreal to me because there, our show is just such a grassroots project. But we're currently on air on National Geographic TV in Asia, which is a potential audience of 4 billion plus people. We've already aired on PBS in the USA. We have been on the Food Network equivalent in Scandinavia, in both Sweden and in Norway, as well as we are airing soon in Canada on Cottage Life Television. And with that being said, we also are quite popular on YouTube in areas that were not blacked out. And that's just season one. We've built season two. It is going to be released on PBS in the spring, which I'm very excited about. And I'm already getting close to uh, filming season three. In fact, one week from today, I'll be on the road traveling down to Central America as we're taking our show, filming our show in more diverse locations. I'm curious, a few things about the show. So how do you pick the locations? That's a great question. In all honesty, our locations have happened based on a bit of convenience, as well as trying to keep costs down. So as an example, we have filmed quite a few locations close to Les's home or one of his houses. We'll use his house as a base camp or my home as a base camp or Kevin's home as a base camp and traveled around based on what season it is. So as an example, Les has uh, a place in Ontario close to Huntsville and we've filmed, I think, three episodes there because he's in a great geographic location that we can drive to someplace new and something new will be growing. And that's a wonderful thing as well. There's so much food, edible, wild food in every single location. We could film a season just in Calgary, but we do like to change up the scenery because it's a very visual experience, our, our television series. And we like to showcase things like the mountains and the prairies and lake country and the ocean. So for that reason, we've really been thoughtful on what we can do close to home. Because I know you, this show is really neat because you love to cook. You're passionate about culinary arts. You're very creative that way. You're always looking for new recipes and new ways of cooking things. But I'm also knowing you as a nature lover as well. Yeah. You always like to be outdoors. You always like to go hiking and exploring things. And when you went to Asia, that was a big thing that you liked about Asia as well, is you and your wife went exploring a lot and you love being outdoors and you're just a real nature lover. So this show, this project of yours is really pulling your two big worlds that you love together. Am I interpreting that really well? Or You nailed it, Mick. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person. The adventure of being outdoors, I still am learning 
new flavors, which is so important to me. And that's one thing I love about my career choice is the fact I never stop learning and I can learn from anybody. So you, you combine my love for the outdoors, my love for new flavors, and the fact that I've got one of the best guides in the world. I, I don't even know how to describe it. Other like if, if you watch an episode, it's not polished. We don't have scripts. This is all organic, genuine live capture. So as I'm cooking and just looking at the food that I'm presenting, that's it. There's the one-off. Often Les will come to me and, and he'll have such a wonderful and rare ingredient. So some ingredients I don't have a lot of. And I have to experiment with them, and I still want to cook with them and learn about them, and then we have to eat them. So, so it's not that, you know, here's take one or here's take two. It's that is what happened that day at that moment, and it is real. And so we've got one cameraman with us who is one of the best on the planet, and Les, who is so great at introducing the show and the philosophy side of it and establishing our location. And my culinary geekiness, where I'm just all focused in on what I'm doing, share the message of food. It's really a unique experience, which is also very calm and relaxing, where the show is so visual as well. Because this, this show came out of an idea of how fun would it be if you were my guide to wild ingredients and Les is thinking, how fun it would be if I brought you wild ingredients and, and you got to cook them. And yeah, let's do it and see where, where it goes. Oh, yeah, let's add in a, a brilliant cameraman, a very, very talented cinematographer named Kevin Coswin, too. Yeah, that would, that would be kind of good. And we just sort of put it to the wind. We didn't know where it was going to go. What we came up with was something that uh, was timely in, in the sense that uh, a lot of people for the past couple of years have been stuck at home watching television and our content really brings the outdoors to the indoors. And the number one comment has been that they've found our show nourishing spiritually. And that's huge to me. We didn't see that coming. I, I could see nourishing because they went out and decided to make a couple of dishes that we did on an episode here or there. But the fact that we brought them a breath of fresh air, I, I think has to be the, the greatest accomplishment. And that was not planned. I could definitely see that. The shows that I've watched, I'm intrigued about though too, is Les's knowledge of the plants. And I'm not quite sure what his background is, but the fact that he, he gives you three or four ingredients and then you just seem to be able to put something together and it looks good and it looks delicious and the way you do it looks real stylish as well so i could see why people would like that or or find it nourishing because because it is raw from nature you seem to take pride in that in your restaurant as well so I, I see how that ties together because you really push the fact that food doesn't drop out of thin air it's growing and it's harvested and you seem to take a lot of pride in that yeah, food is life. Food comes from life. Yeah. We're nourished if we have life because of life that is out there that we've taken. Whether it's plant life or animal life, something gives itself so we can take it, if that makes sense. 
And it's, it's a celebration of that. I've always thought that way. I'm not a vegetarian at all. I love food. I love all food. I love vegetables. I love fish. I love seafood. I love land-based proteins. But I've always been respectful that in, in my world of restaurants, and we go through so much volume, that for everything we serve, especially when it comes to meat that we serve, has come from a life that's been given, and we need to respect that and celebrate that fact. It's a unique position to be in that we can go out and buy whatever we want at a store. You go to the grocery store, you go to the butcher shop, they have it ready for you, you grab it, you take it. But that steak is coming from a cow and that uh, breast and chicken, oh yes, it's part of, part of a chicken. And it's important for me to respect that. And it's important for me that the, the cooks that are with me at the restaurant have that experience of understanding that spinach isn't opening the bag and dumping it out. Spinach comes from growing it. And just to prove that point, here, let's go grow spinach this year. See what it takes to get from the garden to the plate. You have to plant it. You have to water it. You have to grow it. You have to harvest it. You have to clean it all before it actually touches the customer. And uh, I love that messaging. I, I love sharing that information. I love that people connect to it and that they understand it because with that comes to appreciation. And with that appreciation comes respect. And with that respect comes thoughts on how to make sure that we are responsible, that we as species, we all share this planet. We all have our place in this planet and we all need to respect everything on this planet because it has for a very long time lived in harmony. We just have to keep that harmony and we have, if we love something, we'll pay attention to it. And that I, I think is powerful. Maybe the ultimate thing there is an appreciation for the big picture and not just for our position as a human being, how we affect the big picture and vice versa. I think that's why people maybe found your show so inspirational and nutritional, or what was the word I was looking for? Pardon me? Spiritually nourishing. Yeah, that's it. Because they understand, okay, that's where our food was coming from. And you sort of encapsulated the whole thing, that you're taking care of the planet, but yet though the planet's taking care of us. Again, this is a career guy podcast, so people are, though, are listening we're talking about your career and how you've evolved it. Time is running out. I always like to wrap up a show, and I know you're going to have some to say about this, is people that are listening to this interview and somebody who's considering going into culinary arts, such as you, or wanting to cook or wanting to be a chef, or somebody who's just not even sure of what they want to do. I mean, you've done a lot so far with your life. What have you learned? What would you like to pass on to people that are listening? I, I think when it comes to people and, and choosing careers and succeeding. It, it comes down to basic things. Do what you love to do. I know it might take a little bit of time to find out what that career choice is, but that's okay. Figure it out. And, and when you do find what you love, then you'll never work an, another day in your life. And the other thing too is really be yourself, be genuine, and, and really focus on happiness 
And if you if you are satisfied and you're genuine and you're focused on happiness, everything will fall into place. The money will come, the the opportunities will come, and I, I can't think of better advice than that. No, I think those are words of wisdom. So just to recap, you, you've grown up in Calgary. You went to SAIT. You graduated there from culinary arts. You entered many competitions. And from there, you worked at the, the Lachemere. But before you even worked at the Lachemere, you worked at a few, a couple of hotels, CP hotels. And you already knew at that time, though, too, that you love to cook and you just love to be in the kitchen. And from working at the Lachemere, you definitely traveled. You went to Asia, tried that out. And you went to the Dominican Republic, right? No. No. no Cayman Islands. Yeah. Grand Cayman, I'm sorry. From the Grand Cayman, you came back. You worked at Cannery Row, and that was a seafood place, if I remember everything. Yep. And from that, you you met Olivia. Well, you met Olivia at the Lachemere, yep. and Faith sort of just fell into place. He was going to open up a restaurant, and his Olivier's partner sort of fell through. And it just opened up a door for you and you sort of just jumped at it. And you opened up this restaurant in Calgary and you renamed it, you rebranded it. It's called The Rouge. You've had that for 20 years. And in that 20 years, like I said, you rebranded it, you made it into fine dining. You've gone through some ups and downs, but the big thing that you were stressing when you owned The Rouge restaurant is you, you just want to be yourself. And you wanted the staff to be themselves. You wanted to be genuine. You didn't want to come across as being pretentious. You wanted a place where people could still have fun, even though it's fine dining. But at the same time, when you're doing all this, you got into public speaking. And with that, though, too, you also got into making a TV series. And with that, you've also, I think there's a book and a DVD coming out with that as well. The DVD is ready. Uh, the book is being printed. And uh, that's... I think that's pretty accurate there, Mick. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Or did I miss anything? Or have I missed anything that you would like to add? No, do you know what? I, I think in summary, this has been great. It, it's been good for me. I mean, I haven't actually sat down to think retro thoughts. My world is always about tomorrow. What's happening 10 minutes from now, what's happening in the future, a month from now, and so on and so forth. And I'm just lucky that I do look forward to every morning. I look forward to every new experience. And I look forward to, to sharing these experiences with customers or viewers or, or whoever is up for it. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Paul. I'd like to thank you so much for this afternoon and sharing your story with us. Cheers, Mick. It, it, was, uh, it was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Okay, thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Bye for now. I really want to thank Paul for that thought-provoking, insightful, and informative interview. The key takeaways are, he had a strong family background, a real strong foundation where his parents wanted him to be happy. With all the traveling he has done, he realized that Calgary is his home, and he really loves the city, and he's content with that. He also realized early in his life his passion was in the kitchen. He loves being a chef, which is why he kept stating through the interview that he had felt that he's never worked a day in his life. He is living his dream. It is his passion and his respect for all his partners, staff, customers, 
that have led him to have the success that he has had so far. And this would include being a restaurant owner, public speaking, competitions, and of course his TV series. He also talked about the planet as he indicated that life will provide life and we need to take care of our planet as it will take care of us. It is his character that has established him as a true role model and a leader, someone to follow. His words of advice are, find what you love to do, be yourself, and concentrate on being happy. The rest will follow. Again, with that, I would like to thank Paul very much for that interview. Please tune in for the next episode of The Career Guy, where I will be interviewing Paul McNeil, a life of a paleontologist.